Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome everyone to episode 66 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you today? Yeah, good. Um, feeling the silly season, um, which is weird after the year that we've had. How are you? Good, yeah. I've been getting into all the uh, Christmas spirit with all the Christmas music. Michael Bublé's come out of his cave, so <laughs> that's good. No Mariah? <laughs> no Mariah. No, I'll get into more. I'll talk more about it. it was, we're actually um, giving everyone a bit of a, a, a sneak peek into my happy thought, which is some of the more old-timey Christmas <laughs> oh, guys, nice. like Bing Crosby and stuff like that. So, But we'll, we'll talk more about that later. Okay. <laughs> we got some Patreon shout-outs? We do. Thank you so much and welcome to Nicholas McLaughlin. Cleo, Clint, Janine Asquith, Kerry Morgan and Freya Bennett. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. The case we are discussing today contains discussion of crimes against young children. Some of the content is difficult to hear, so we'd encourage our listeners to exercise self-care when listening to this episode. Today we're covering a highly requested case and it's a tragedy which occurred in the Gippsland region of Victoria back in 1997 a case that really rocked the Latrobe Valley and Victoria. There was a lot of media attention around this story at the time and since. To kick things off, we're going to wind the clock right back, a couple of generations back from the young boy who tragically lost his life in this case, because it's the backstory of how the people around him came to be where they were and the way they were at that point in time that really sets up this whole awful saga. But before we dive into that, we're going to take a glimpse into the night itself and an important incident that would further muddy some already deep and dark waters. Fifteenth of June, nineteen ninety-seven, Newborough, Victoria. It was around two a.m. Kenny Penfold had a severed pig's head and a handful of rocks. Darren Wilson had an axe handle. They watched from the bushes along the railway siding on Narakan Drive as Greg Domasevich came out and put something in the bin at the front of his house. Then he went back inside. This was Kenny's chance to send a message. Greg had mistreated his sister, Yvonne, for the last time. They watched the house, waiting for him to leave. The wait got to Kenny, specifically his bowels. He dropped his trousers and relieved himself in the bushes before ripping off his T-shirt pocket square to use for wiping. Two minutes later, Greg came out and left in his green XC Falcon sedan. Kenny and Darren ran to the house, launching the pig's head a couple of times and hurling a volley of rocks through the front windows. Dogs barked and lights came on and the pair ran off down Narakan Drive, the pig's head sitting in the garden bed at the front of the house, ready to serve as a message to Greg when he returned home. They ran off through the darkness to where Yvonne was planning to pick them up, stopping momentarily to scare a few passing teenagers by yelling boo in their faces. Little did Kenny and Darren know, their simple revenge-style prank had just inserted them into what would become one of Australia's most tragic child murder investigations. (laughs) 
In the small town of Swifts Creek, located in the Tambo Valley in East Gippsland, a young woman named Pam met and married a local timber worker named Murphy. Pam's parents were honest, hard-working folk. Her dad was a police officer. The young timber worker, while always holding down a job, wasn't cut from the same cloth when it came to honesty. After Pam gave birth to their first child, who they named Katie, Mr Murphy, the lumberjack, was swinging more than just his axe. He began having affairs with other women, drinking heavily and hitting his young wife Pam. The Murphy family moved a lot throughout regional Victoria, itinerant work in the timber industry being how they got by at this time during the 70s and into the 80s. Over a dozen times the family moved, the infidelity, alcohol and violence remaining the only constant. While in the town of Marupna, Pam was working nights in a motel and had organised for a friend of hers to mind the kids. By this time, the Murphys had two more children, a son named Glenn and another daughter named Belinda. Belinda was spelled a bit differently, B-I-L-Y-N-D-A, due to Pam's desire for a boy who she wanted to call Billy. The derivative spelling trend was something that would continue within the Murphy family in the years to come. So Pam had finished her work at the motel one night when her eldest, Katie, asked why Daddy was in bed with the babysitter. This was the straw that broke the camel's back. Pam turfed Mr Murphy out with all of his belongings before heading back to Lake's entrance to be near her family. But in many ways, the damage had already been done to Pam and her kids, having lived through what they had. From this point on, Pam had to get government payments to help them live. She couldn't work. She had to look after the kids. So in their formative years, the Murphy kids grew up in a cycle of alcohol abuse and a welfare-centric way of living. Katie Murphy, being the eldest, was the first to begin living her own version of this as she approached adulthood. She decided to change the spelling of her name from the traditional way to Katie, K-A-D-E-E, ingraining the emerging alternative spelling trend within the Murphy clan. At the age of 14, she ran away for the first time, and after this, worked a few odd jobs for short periods of time, but none of them stuck. She began going out, drinking, smoking and meeting men. And it was on one of these occasions when she was 16 and heading to a party with a friend, a bottle of Jim Beam and a packet of Long Beaches in hand, that she met a young man named Brett Lesky. She didn't rate him that highly at first. He was a normal country boy, short, dark hair and into cars. But they got along and they spent the night and following day together. They saw each other on and off again in the time after this hooking up a few times as youngsters do, before Katie made the decision to bring him home to meet her family. Pam wasn't a big fan of Brett to begin with. She thought he was selfish and had a wandering eye for Katie's younger sister, Belinda. This may have started some bubbling tensions between the sisters, who were already beginning to have a tempestuous relationship that would continue into their adulthood. There was certainly love there, but also rivalry and fierce arguments. Amidst Katie confidently striding into her late teens and enjoying herself with friends, the Murphys moved to Moruya on the New South Wales south coast. They'd stay here for four years. During this time, Pam had a stroke and young Belinda was tasked with being her primary carer. Katie, on the other hand, returned to Maui in the broader Latrobe Valley on various trips with friends, partying and spending time with men, including, but not limited, to Brett Lesky. Katie returned home to Maruya one time and she was pregnant, but Brett Lesky wasn't the father. Katie, however, didn't tell Brett this the next time they saw each other and he assumed that it was his child. The Murphys moved from Maruya to Sale back in Gippsland and Katie had her baby named Harley. She continued seeing Brett, who decided to propose to do the right thing. The young couple married in October of 1992 in the front yard of Brett's parents' farmhouse. Katie's sister Belinda didn't attend, apparently because she didn't want to wear a dress, but we also know she wasn't too happy with her sister for what she perceived as a dirty trick being played on Brett. Belinda, who knew Brett relatively well by now and liked him, thought her sister had done the dodgy by letting him think the young baby was his, but Brett also had some legal troubles too going before the courts on theft-related charges at this time, so it didn't hurt his case having a young family to support when seeking leniency from the judge. Brett and Katie moved in with his parents, Elizabeth and Ray, for a short time, 
The Leskies were hard-working farmers, Baptists, but things ultimately didn't gel with Katie's nature. Brett, too, was spending much of his time ripping cones and burnouts around town. The couple ultimately moved out, fell pregnant again and miscarried, before trying again. In between, they spent most of their time going out, smoking and drinking. When they had their second child, technically Brett's first, a daughter named Shannon, Brett had a nervous breakdown. He was unable to do much more than lounge around the house as Katie wrangled their two young children. June of 1993 would spell the end of their marriage, when at their joint 21st birthday, the couple had a fiery stoush that saw Brett move out, and he didn't come back. Katie suspected Brett was having an affair with her sister Belinda. Some sources say they weren't, but got together some months after he and Katie separated. Others say Katie caught them out. Whatever the case, Brett Lesky left Katie Murphy and moved in with her sister Belinda, who was 17 at this time. And it's about now we'd see another all-important character come into this tale, one we've mentioned briefly, and that's the town of Moey. Moey in the Latrobe Valley, Gippsland, is believed to have been named after the indigenous Kurnai mob's word meaning swampland. And Moey isn't sweeping lush green pastures and dairy farms like much of Gippsland back at this time. It was an industrial hub, a blue-collar town centred on the thriving power production industry. Electricity production and open-cut brown coal mines would fuel the town's economy until privatisation hit in the 1990s under the Kennett government. Since this time, alongside the town's growing health concerns linked to the aforementioned industries, the population has dwindled amidst shifting families, 30 and 40-somethings leaving the region with their primary school-aged kids to seek work elsewhere. With the decline in industry and rising unemployment rates came an increase in drug use and, anecdotally, there came less than desirable social trends. As one local named Denise Hall commented, there's no hope, nothing to do, nowhere to go, no jobs. There are second and third generation unemployed people, so they're not just income poor, they're skill poor. A number of abandoned state electricity commission houses off the back of the privatisation became known as an area called the Bronx. The government offered assistance to single mothers to relocate to the area, with the idea being that their welfare checks would stretch much further with this low cost of living. And it was around this area that Brett Lesky and Belinda Murphy set up home at number 27 Lincoln Street in Moey. By the mid-90s, a little over a year into their relationship, they'd had two kids of their own, a daughter named Brianna in 1995, also spelled uniquely B-R-E-E-H-A-N-N-A, a combination of Belinda's grandmother's middle name Hannah and the more standard spelling of Brianna, which they'd spotted on the name tag of a young girl working at the local supermarket checkout. And then on the 30th of April 1996, they had a boy who they named Jaden. His name was inspired by a good-looking black man Belinda had seen on the Ricky Lake show. On a side note, Jaden came into the world during a very bleak week of Australian history. This was actually the week of the tragic Port Arthur massacre in Tasmania, which most of our listeners would know about and many might even recall. But that didn't really impact little Jaden's start to life all the way over in Maui. Brett was very proud of his little boy, thought he was going to be a mechanic like him, Jaden was a red-cheeked bundle of joy who loved his mum to bits. He was a big eater. You couldn't leave any food scraps around the place or Jaden would vacuum them up as quick as you like. While Belinda, with her bleached blonde hair, hurried about after the two young'uns in her slim jeans and moccasins, Brett decided to go into business for himself. He rented half the space at a factory in Delatore Road, where he planned to continue working with cars, doing spray painting and other odd automotive jobs. It was here that he met a guy named Greg Domasevich. Greg, or Grishka as many called him, rented the other half of the space. He and Brett got along okay, but Brett thought Greg was pretty lazy and didn't really turn over much work in the time he spent there. On the home front, things weren't going too well between Brett and Belinda. Brett wasn't happy and was considering going to Western Australia, on the other side of the country, to earn some coin in the mines. The situation wasn't helped by a bitter Katie Murphy coming back into the picture, still harbouring a lot of resentment towards her sister for stealing Brett from her. Katie still had feelings for Brett and wanted him back, and to do that, she had to split them up. 
Belinda, who wasn't sold on Brett's cohabitating mechanic Greg to begin with, found herself warming to the guy over time, and this was encouraged by her sister Katie. Katie's game of chess ended with Brett leaving for WA shortly after she'd had her keycard stolen and $400 taken from her bank account. Brett visited Jaden and Brianna the weekend before he left, but it seemed like things were over between him and Belinda at this point. He left and Katie told Belinda that if it was meant to be, he'd come back to her. But he didn't. Instead, Katie kept encouraging Belinda to keep at things with Greg, who was actually in a relationship of his own, albeit on the rocks, with a woman named Yvonne Penfold. Greg Domasevich was born in Maui on the 26th of September 1968. He was the son of first-generation Russian immigrants and had grown into a rough-and-tumble small-town guy, He was a bit weird, a practical joker, interested in aliens and smoked his fair share of dope. When he wasn't tinkering with cars or fishing, he'd drink and do drugs and play weird pranks on his friends, like putting fish guts, which he kept a a bucket of handy, into his friends' air conditioning units so the smell would permeate throughout their house. Or he'd borrow a mate's car, ring them and tell them that he'd written it off, instilling momentary panic before he showed up with the car untouched. Greg lived at 115 Narakan Drive in Newborough, part of Maui. He was 28 at this time and covered his receding business at the front hairline with a Foster's Lager cap, while letting his party at the back mullet flap about in the breeze like a towel on a washing line. As his relationship with Belinda began in 1997, Greg kept sleeping with his ex-girlfriend Yvonne Penfold. Greg didn't have kids of his own, but he'd wanted them with Yvonne. Things between them were tumultuous and hadn't ended well. Greg was abusive and violent to Yvonne. He had threatened her and she'd taken out court orders against him. Greg had even threatened a friend of Yvonne's one time. Her name was Cheryl, allegedly saying that he'd tie her up, weigh her down and throw her into the nearby Blue Rock Dam. As things progressed with Belinda, Greg became quite enamoured with her son Jaden. He was around 12 months old, the first time Greg offered to babysit him. Just him, not Brianna. Belinda thought it was a tad strange at first, but with her sister's encouragement, thought it'd be okay. They'd been seeing each other for a while now, and it'd give her a break for a bit. When she arrived back to pick up Jaden the first time, he was out the back of Greg's house, lying down in the sun with Greg's three bull terrier dogs. He was smiling and looked like he'd had fun. Belinda was relieved, she'd been stressing about the visit, but all seemed well, and Greg asked to have him again after this. Greg told Belinda that he wasn't a huge fan of Julie, the babysitter that she and Katie had engaged, to mind all four of their kids when they went out on occasion. So he wanted to have Jaden more because of this, again, not the three other girls, just Jaden. It seemed strange, and on subsequent visits, Jaden didn't appear to have the same amount of fun each time. While Greg generally looked after the boy, his care of him during these visits was questionable to say the least. He didn't seem to feed Jaden, gave him a bottle filled with either cordial or Coca-Cola and was reluctant to change his nappy, often leaving him soiled until Belinda returned. And while reportedly Greg would play Nintendo with Jaden and enjoyed his company, he'd also get easily annoyed with the boy. If he'd cry too loud or too long, Greg would put him outside with the dogs or turn the stereo up so loud that it'd drown out the crying. Greg would take Jaden on fishing trips, one time taking him to Blue Rock Dam, which seemed like a great experience for a little boy, but then he'd end up getting hurt, falling and hitting his head. Greg would call him names and get enjoyment out of pushing Jaden over so he'd fall onto his bottom. The dynamic seemed strange and got even weirder when one time, Belinda and Katie returned to Narakan Drive to pick Jaden up and Greg had given the boy a haircut. He shaved Jaden's head at the front, seemingly to make it match his own receding hairline, and left this crescent of stubble at the back of his head, dappled with hastily carved out triangles. Despite this occurrence and the occasional injuries Jaden appeared to be getting, Belinda continued to entrust Greg with the care of her son, while she went out to run errands or hit the town with her sister and friends. By June the 14th, 1997, Greg had minded Jaden eight to ten times over the past three months, and apparently they were getting along fine. Belinda had organised for Julie Brassington, their usual babysitter Greg didn't like, to mind both Jaden and Brianna 
at her sister's house, where their cousins, Shannon and Harley, would also be. Belinda and Katie had a big night ahead, planning to attend a party and then head to Ryan's hotel in the nearby town of Traralgon. Greg rolled around to Belinda's in the morning and offered to have Jaden for the day. He was working on his car and the little fella would have fun messing about in the backyard with him and the dogs. Belinda agreed and Greg went to buy a Tats Lotto ticket before returning to pick Jaden up. In the meantime, Belinda packed Jaden's bag with some clothes, a bottle, an apple, a muesli bar, a lollipop and four nappies. She then dressed him in warm clothes as Greg said it might be a bit cool and potentially raining. They then transferred Belinda's car seat to Greg's car. The seat was a bit wet as it had been sitting on the veranda and he drove Belinda and the two kiddies to Katie's house in Hawker Street, Geralgon. This was around 1.30pm in the afternoon. Belinda and Brianna got out, but Jaden stayed in the car with Greg. Julie, the babysitter, wasn't scheduled to look after the kids until the evening and the plan was... Greg would have Jaden for the afternoon before dropping him back at Katie's where Julie would have all four kids overnight. Greg gave Belinda $70 and told her to have an extra special time. Belinda gave Jaden a kiss and then they drove off. According to Greg, he and Jaden then arrived back at his place sometime around 2pm. He opened the gates to the backyard where his dogs were and drove the car in. He took Jaden out and then reversed the car up onto a set of ramps so he could work under it. But evidently the ramps alone didn't provide Greg with enough height for whatever he wanted to do under the car because he then jacked the front of the car up further with a trolley jack. Greg worked away throughout the afternoon attempting to fix the heater cable, welding the exhaust and doing some spray painting to the front of the car. At one stage the trolley jack gave way and fell on Greg but he was unharmed. He jacked it back up and kept working while Jaden fossicked about with the dogs in the backyard. It rained a little bit throughout the afternoon. Jaden got slightly wet but was able to go in and out of the house as Greg had the back door partially held open by an extension lead. He had a few dirty bolts that Greg gave him too to muck around with so he'd have mechanics hands to show his mum when he took him back to her. Again, according to Greg, he finished working on the car around dark, 6pm, and parked the car back outside the gates in his driveway. He and Jaden then went inside. Jaden had eaten a few chips during the afternoon, but other than that, he hadn't eaten much at all. He had, however, fallen over in the backyard and bled briefly from his lip. Greg had spoken with his neighbour, Alan Sparks, throughout the afternoon as he went in and out. Greg also had a few phone calls one with a friend named Darren Farr. They'd seemingly had a bit of a falling out, which again seems to have been perpetuated by Katie. She'd suggested to Darren that Greg had a vendetta against him and was going to kill him by Christmas. The pair seemed to smooth things over, but Greg didn't mention to Darren what he'd been up to, that he had Jaden or was working on his car. In a couple of phone calls Greg had with Belinda, the first being around 4pm, Greg said Jaden was fine. He didn't need any more clothes and that he was going to shower him and bring him home shortly. He mentioned Jaden had taken a tumble, but not that he was bleeding. During this call, Belinda heard Jaden in the background say the word dog. A subsequent phone call with Belinda centred on the previous call he'd had with Darren, in which Greg took aim at Katie for perpetuating the call from Darren confronting Greg. This in turn sparked a fight between Belinda and Katie, threatening to ruin their plans for the night. Belinda actually left Katie's house, taking Brianna, and tried to ring Greg 15 to 20 times between 5.30 and 7.45pm to tell him not to bring Jaden to Katie's. The plans had changed. She was going home with Brianna now and to drop Jaden there. But Greg didn't answer his phone during this time, which apparently wasn't unusual for him. He later said he didn't even hear the phone ring, but he was at home with Jaden. Greg did make a call during this time, however, phoning a neighbour, Marianne McKinnon, and asking her where he could buy nappies. Evidently, he'd changed Jaden's nappy four times that afternoon or didn't realise there were four nappies in the bag Belinda had given him. In the meantime, Katie and Belinda had spoken and had smoothed things over. They renewed their plans to head out and Katie and her boyfriend Neville picked Belinda up. Brianna went back to Katie's and they drove to this party around 8pm before heading to Ryan's hotel around 11pm. As soon as Belinda got to Ryan's, she called Greg, finally getting a hold of him and expecting Greg to have dropped Jaden at Katie's. 
Belinda was surprised when Greg said he had bad news. Jaden had been burned by leaning up against a heater in his house. Greg said he'd taken Jaden to casualty and they'd put some cream on his bum, but he wasn't happy with the job they'd done. So he drove Jaden to Maryvale Hospital, where they were now looking after him. Belinda was understandably concerned and said she wanted to come home. Greg said no, that she should stay and have a good time and to give him a call later and he'd come and pick her up. They ended the call and Belinda told Katie what had happened. She was adamant that she wanted to go home, but Katie thought this was probably just another one of Greg's sick jokes that he always played. Katie actually called Greg back and sure enough, it was just that, a stupid joke. Jaden was fine, presumably asleep by this time just before midnight, and he told Katie to make sure Belinda had a good time. So she did just that. Belinda drank Sub-Zeros, bourbon, Sambuca and Coke before eventually there was an altercation and she was refused further service. Ryan's was known for this kind of roughhousing atmosphere, a real beacon for the heavy drinkers and brawlers it was reported. Belinda had supposedly upset the girlfriend of a guy named Brett McGrath who thought she'd been flirting with him and this is what led to the stoush. Belinda called Greg to come and pick her up around 2am at which time Greg said Jaden hadn't burnt himself, he was okay, he'd just gotten a red mark from standing too close to the heater. Greg left his house to go and pick Belinda up shortly after this call. He hadn't been drinking except for maybe a sip from a can of bourbon and coke, but he had smoked some pot. As Greg was organising himself to leave, across the road from his house, in the bushes alongside the railway line, a pair of figures were lurking and planning something. This is where we circle back to the introduction of this episode, where Kenny Penfold and Darren Wilson were hiding out, waiting for Greg Domasevich to leave. Their plan was to smash his windows in with rocks and throw a severed pig head into his house to send him a clear message. But this was no mafia-style message. This was a pretty basic warning from Kenny on behalf of his sister Yvonne, who Greg was involved with up until recently. Kenny Penfold was a bit of a brash, petty criminal, a larrikin type, and he didn't like Greg, probably because of his violent history with his sister. And the pig's head had more significance than just being something Yvonne and Kenny had seen in The Godfather. Greg used to have a pet pig called Stimpy, who he apparently loved dearly, and Greg reckons that one day Yvonne took Stimpy and had it slaughtered without Greg knowing and brought the pig back in pieces before freezing him. Yvonne had a different recollection, saying that her and Greg decided together to fatten the hog up and they both took Stimpy to be slaughtered for this very purpose. Whatever the truth of that, the pig's head clearly had a personal meaning behind it and it would likely leave Greg in no doubt as to who'd done it and what it meant. Stay away from Yvonne and stop treating her badly. We won't run over the details of the Penfold's plan and execution of the pig's head incident as we detailed that in the introduction. Needless to say, they watched Greg leave after putting something in his bin outside, smashed the windows with rocks, and the pig's head ended up on the ground in the front of the window. They then ran up the road towards Maui where Yvonne picked them up, scaring a few passing teens along the way. Far as Kenny, Darren and Yvonne were concerned, that was that. The plan had gone off without a hitch. The issue they had, which they didn't know at the time, was that this simple revenge-style prank would insert them all into something much more sinister. Sometime before 3am, Greg picked up Belinda from the pub and she asked why Jaden wasn't in his car seat. Apparently, Greg reverted back to his story that Jaden was in the hospital. However, Belinda was quite drunk by this time and when she asked to go and see Jaden, Greg said it wasn't a good idea as she wouldn't make a very good impression, being that of a drunk and bad mother. But he brought a can of bourbon and coke along for the ride so Belinda could keep drinking if she wanted to. Jaden wasn't at the hospital though, and Greg knew that. He'd later say this was just another one of his kooky jokes. According to Greg, he'd actually left Jaden at home asleep on the couch. But he didn't mention that, as leaving a 14-month-old child home alone as they slept while you drove to the pub to pick up your drunk girlfriend wasn't a good look. When Greg and Belinda arrived back at his house in Narakan Drive, they saw the windows smashed out and the pig's head lying on the ground in the front garden. 
Greg immediately suspected Yvonne, called her and screamed that this is one of her sick games. Belinda told Greg to call the police, but Greg said no because he wasn't a rat. He did realise at this time, however, that little Jaden was missing. He wasn't on the couch where Greg says he left him. But he didn't mention that to Belinda at this moment because he told her he was in the hospital and didn't want to alarm her. They didn't stay long at Greg's place before leaving and driving past Yvonne's house. Her car was in the driveway and her lights were on, but they didn't stop. They continued on to Belinda's place where they arrived around 3.20am. Inside, Belinda nestled down on the lounge room floor next to the heater, calling both Julie, the babysitter, and Brett McGrath, who'd been at the pub with her. Greg had already left. He'd basically dropped Belinda inside and taken off again, saying he was going to find out who damaged his house. Belinda phoned him again, last of all, and asked him to return to her place. He said he would. Greg returned to Belinda's around 5am. For the next two hours, he says he was mostly looking for Jaden, having realised the gravity of the situation at long last. What we know for sure is that Greg got pulled over by the police around 3.35am. Senior constables Farnham Molesworth and Matthew Georgenson pulled him over for a random licence and breath test in Bennett Street, where they spoke to him for maybe five minutes. Greg said he'd been nowhere. He didn't get out of the car, but his demeanour seemed cautious. He didn't mention to the officers about the pig's head incident or that Jaden was missing, later clarifying that he had a distrust of the local police due to his belief that Yvonne Penfold was having a relationship with a local officer, someone else other than the two that we've mentioned here. After a negative breath test result, the officers let Greg be on his way. He apparently returned home briefly, again cruised past Yvonne's, where he saw and did nothing before returning to Belinda's. Belinda awoke at 5am with Greg shaking her and saying, Jaden's not in the hospital, I lied to you, we have to go to the police, he's been abducted. Belinda, still drunk, thought he was again joking. Greg had a habit of this, having made jokes about being abducted by aliens in the past, so surely this was just another one of those moments. But something about the look on Greg's face told Belinda he wasn't joking this time. Greg began to cry and hug Belinda, telling her he was sorry and that it was a stupid joke, saying Jaden had been in hospital. He'd never been there, he'd just been asleep on the couch. He didn't want her to know that he'd left Jaden home alone, asleep on the couch, but figured when they got back, she'd see him and everything would be okay. But everything wasn't okay. The pair now headed to Moey Police Station to report Jaden missing. Senior Constable Molesworth, who'd pulled Greg over only a couple of hours earlier, was manning the desk when the distressed pair came into the station at 5.18am on Sunday the 15th of January. We have a kidnapping, Greg said, and he explained the whole story. He'd left Jaden asleep, gone to pick Belinda up and come home to a smashed up house and pig's head in the yard and no Jaden. Senior Constable Molesworth called over the boss, Sergeant Maxwell Hill. Sergeant Hill heard them out and noted Greg Domasevich's disposition, the way he looked. He split the pair up, taking them into separate interview rooms, where he first began to talk with a drunken Belinda. Before doing so, Sergeant Hill switched on a nearby exhaust fan to drown out their closed-door conversation so no one outside could hear her. After a brief chat with Belinda, who was still not clear on what was happening in her present state, Sergeant Hill left the interview room, only to notice Greg was sitting outside his own interview room and the exhaust fan had been switched off. He appeared to Sergeant Hill to be eavesdropping on their conversation. Sergeant Hill switched the fan back on, telling Greg it needed to stay on or the room would get stuffy. He told Greg to go back inside his interview room and to leave the door closed. Minutes later, the sergeant heard Greg's interview room door creak open again. He then went and spoke with Greg for around 45 minutes, during which time Greg blamed the attack on his house and the probable abduction of Jaden on the penfolds. Greg and Belinda's stories were conflicting, and combined with how he perceived Greg's demeanour, Sergeant Hill soon formed the opinion they likely had a murder on their hands. Later that morning, Sergeant Hill and Detective Shelley Rees conducted a more lengthy interview with Greg Domasevich before calling in the Homicide Squad, the team sent in this instance headed by Detective Senior Sergeant Roland Legg. 
Belinda too was interviewed twice more and police found it very hard to get a read on her. They were naturally suspicious of her. She was a suspect too, alongside Greg and the Penfolds. But in her state, Belinda was going back and forth with what she thought. It wasn't until she saw the news report on TV later in the day about her missing son Jaden that it all hit home and became real. With the homicide squad on the case and searches for Jaden in the works, forensics were now called in to inspect both Greg and Belinda's houses, as well as Greg's car. They also visited the Penfolds to interview them about Greg's allegations, but this wasn't in those early hours of the morning when Jaden was first reported missing. This happened a bit later. At Greg's house, forensics saw the smashed windows in the pig's head, but there were no signs of forced entry. The glass inside hadn't been stepped on and cracked. Things that might have toppled over that needed to be moved to get in through the window were still in place, untouched. Rocks inside the house were consistent with those found along the nearby railway line and no other windows or doors had been forced open. A tiny particle of skin tissue and a number of hair fibres were found on the grill of the gas space heater. Blood spots were discovered in the bathroom and on tissues located in the bin outside the front of the house. The bathroom blood was later determined to be Yvonne Penfolds and on the tissues, which appeared to have been twisted in the same way you would if packing someone's nose, this blood was determined to be Jaden's. Also of interest was $600 in cash located under a mattress inside the house. The notes were wet to agree that was consistent with being submerged while in someone's pocket, not dappled with rainfall. These points were all very important, and Greg would later give reasons for them, such as Jaden falling earlier in the day and bleeding, he wasn't sure if he'd hit his lip, chin, or if the dogs had licked a scab off him, but he had bled and that was explaining the tissues. He'd left his wallet outside while working on the car too, so the cash had probably got rained on. And Jaden had been a bit close to that heater, so that explained that. At Belinda's house on Lincoln Street, forensics observed a cot and bedding on the floor besides the cot and a baby's bottle just inside the doorway of the room. This was an interesting find as Belinda in her state hadn't been sure of many things, but one thing she knew was that she'd made Jaden's bed in the previous night before she'd headed out. In Greg's Green Falcon XC sedan, forensic officers noted a wet jacket on the floor and a very wet wallet on the floor underneath the accelerator. The carpet was also wet, but not as wet as the wallet, which, like the cash in Greg's house, appeared to have been submerged in water. But again, this was explainable, as Belinda even confirmed that Greg's car got water in the front passenger side when it rained. Police then questioned the pig's head crew, as according to Greg, they were likely responsible for Jaden's abduction. Alongside the Penfolds and Darren Wilson, their friends Dean Ross and Raymond Hopkinson were also questioned. Although not there in Narakan Drive on the night itself, they had apparently been part of the planning of it all. On the surface, their stories checked out. The evidence of the rocks from the train line, no signs of entry to the house, and the reasoning behind what they'd done, as stupid as it all sounded, it was actually adding up. Kenny Penfold was even able to take police to where his excitement had got the better of his bowels and pointed out to them his now petrified pile of faeces in the bushes across the road. Witnesses too were able to confirm that they'd seen both Kenny and Darren running down Narakan Drive, neither of them in possession of a young child or bundle of any kind. The three youths they came across, Paul Reed, John Sellers and Daniel Holtstead, also confirmed that the pair weren't acting like kidnappers, screaming boo in their faces before taking off down the road, neither of them carrying anything more than the shirts on their backs. As much as Greg was pointing the finger at the Penfolds and co, the evidence wasn't really supporting the contention they were involved in Jaden's disappearance. Between his first and second formal interviews some four days apart, police surveilled Greg, hoping he'd lead them to Jaden. Instead, all he did was lead them back to Belinda, who'd seemingly welcomed him home. Greg reassured her he had nothing to do with Jaden's disappearance, and with them taking a trip to Melbourne to go shopping in the time after this, police and the media who'd swept into town found this strange and very interesting. Especially considering police thought Belinda believed Greg was involved. Belinda's behaviour had divided locals and the broader public in Victoria, 
and after much persistence from Detective Roland Legg, Belinda eventually fronted the media to plead for information on Jaden's whereabouts. In his second interview with police, Greg was now firmly pointing the finger at Yvonne Penfold. Heck, she'd even done something strange like this before. Greg told police that one time Yvonne had called Belinda and told her to check on her children. When Belinda did, Jaden and Brianna had been switched in their beds. Belinda confirmed this happened, but there was no evidence to say Yvonne had done this, and it wasn't just another of Greg's jokes. Greg's version of events this time around was finally combed through by detectives, and they noted a number of inconsistencies with his first interview. He stuck to his reasons as to why he'd done what he had, his distrust of the local police, and his stupid jokes with Belinda, but he hadn't hurt Jaden and wasn't involved in his disappearance. Police confirmed Greg's timeline with him, and it wasn't supported by the witness statements they had obtained from neighbours in the vicinity of both his and Belinda's house. Even friends and acquaintances had seen Greg's car at home at times when he said he was out. Neighbours cast a lot of shade on his timeline, placing Greg at his house when he said he wasn't, and at Belinda's during times he said he was elsewhere. Moe had been well and truly swept up in a morbid soap drama, and little Jaden still hadn't been found. Brett Lesky made his way back from WA amidst the turmoil his family and the Murphy family were suffering. With things as heightened as they were, Belinda decided to go away to New South Wales for a couple of weeks. When she returned home, she found a dummy Jaden had pinned to him and a toy mobile phone, both items he had had with him the day she last saw him. She later found a plastic bag she'd sent with Jaden that day in her linen cupboard. On a visit to Greg, she also found a wind cheater of Jaden's, which was ripped around the throat and smelled of vomit. Detectives worked away in the background, building their case based on what they believed the evidence was saying, and that was that Greg had killed Jaden, either on purpose or accidentally, and had disposed of his body somewhere. After getting the green light from Chief Crown Prosecutor Paul Coughlin QC, on the 16th of July 1997, police charged Greg Domasevich with Jaden's murder. Greg's tone didn't change behind bars as he was held on remand without bail to await trial. He even penned a book during the 17 months he spent behind bars entitled The Babysitter's Story. In this, he basically outlines his aforementioned version of events focusing on his roller coaster relationship with Yvonne Penfold and the corrupt local police she was having affairs with, which led them to believe her and fabricate evidence against him. Meanwhile, on the outside, the storm had subsided in Maui, but the Lesky and Murphy families were still grieving and dealing with the ambiguous loss of their 14-month-old Jaden. Despite Greg being charged, there was no relief. Jaden still hadn't been found. It wasn't until five months later, when the new year ticked over, that this changed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. On New Year's Day 1998, 14-year-old Samuel Payne was having a picnic with his family at Blue Rock Dam, some 18 kilometres from Maui. As he walked along, doing nothing in particular, Samuel noticed something floating in the water. It appeared to be a young child. The police were contacted and they attended, the water police retrieving the body from the cold waters in the early evening. A forensic pathologist then attended and identified the clothing on the body as being those of Jaden Lesky, and the body most likely that of the young boy who'd been missing for some six months. The pathologist noticed some visible signs of injury. Firstly, his arm appeared to have been broken, 
There was an elastic bandage with tape around it on his left arm from the elbow to the wrist. He'd also suffered some kind of blunt force trauma to the head, which was potentially the cause of death. The cold waters had preserved Jaden's body to some extent, however medical examiners were unable to conclusively rule out other potential causes, such as drowning or even strangulation. Another horrible insight was that Jaden also had a fractured rib, and this injury was healed to some extent, indicating he'd suffered this weeks before he died. Further searches of the dam were undertaken, and police discovered a child's sleeping bag attached to a crowbar with rope. A white plastic bag with children's clothing, bottles and nappies was later found, and all identified to be consistent with what Belinda had packed for Jaden. This may have conflicted with earlier reports that Belinda had found this plastic bag in her house, although it could have been a different bag. Crime scene examiners determined that the bag and Jaden's body had likely been wrapped up in the sleeping bag, but had popped out over time and the window in which Jaden's body had been discovered was quite remarkable. It was said that his body mustn't have been there on the surface for long, and it wouldn't have remained floating for long before sinking again. Considering the location was fairly remote, it was pure luck that someone was actually there to observe it at the time. Both the sleeping bag and the crowbar were linked back to Greg, although Belinda wasn't sure the sleeping bag was at Greg's. She thought it would have been at her house. Greg's mate, Paul Lietzow, had lent him the crowbar. It was identified from a photo and confirmed to be the same one. A few other important factors would come out of the discovery of Jaden's body. Firstly, in establishing via simulation trials how the bundle containing Jaden's body made it out to where it had been in the dam, some 12 metres into the water. Police determined that if someone had pushed or thrown the bundle, they would have had to have been at least submerged up to waist height in the dam to get it to where it finished. The use of a boat was eliminated, as Greg had previously but no longer had access to one of those. The length of Jaden's hair, observed by Belinda in autopsy photos, was also called into question. As we know, Greg had given him a buzz cut only days before he disappeared, but Jaden's hair seemed quite a bit longer in the post-mortem photos. This was strange and raised the question of him potentially being alive for some time after his disappearance. But it was just that, a perception. Jaden's hair was wet in the photos, which possibly distorted things. Belinda couldn't say for sure, just thought that it did appear a little bit longer. Toxicology also returned some interesting results. A drug called Benzexol, commonly known as Artane, was discovered in Jaden's system. This drug was commonly used to treat Parkinson's disease or people suffering from tremors. And lastly, a DNA profile was discovered on Jaden's bib and pants. This DNA profile matched that of a young woman whose DNA was on file as she was the victim of a sexual assault. Needless to say, this complicated matters. There was only three possible explanations for this woman to have her DNA on Jaden's bib and pants. One, she had been directly involved in the crime. Two, there had been some contamination in the lab. Or three, it was an adventitious match. Not her DNA, but someone else with the exact same profile. With the chances of that being one in 3.4 billion with testing at this time, that really only left the first two possibilities. Extensive interviews by Detective Legg and his team determined that this female had absolutely no connection with Jaden or anyone associated with him. She'd not even been to Gippsland on that side of the state. In the end, it was determined there'd been contamination of the samples within the Vicpole lab, which threw just another complication into things as police and prosecutors continued trying to strengthen their case. When Greg Domasevich heard from his prison cell in the Metropolitan Remand Centre that Jaden's body had been found, he collapsed. Prior to this, he'd apparently run his mouth a few times to some fellow inmates. Three reports surfaced in the time immediately before Greg's trial, in which he allegedly confessed to three different guys, various things and levels of involvement in what had happened to Jaden. The first two guys, referred to as F and M in court documents, told police stories that really seemed pieced together from what had been made public, and both of them had something to gain. They were seemingly trying to broker deals in exchange for their stories. The last guy, however, police seemed to put a lot more stock in. 
Referred to as Prisoner R, this guy didn't come to the police. Instead, they went to him. He was due to be released shortly and had nothing to gain personally from telling them what he knew. He relayed a tale in which Greg allegedly told him that Jaden's arms had gotten caught under his car when the trolley jack gave way, as it had done to him earlier in the afternoon. The kid was screaming. Greg said he didn't know what to do, so he slipped the child something to make him calmer. But the kid didn't shut up, so he put a pillow over its head and hit it with a crowbar. R said that Greg became hot and sweaty and upset when he told him this and never brought it up again. Compelling as this tale was, it was simply discovered too close to trial. If it was presented, it would look like a last-ditch desperate effort, and prosecutors were confident in their case as it was. As a result, R wasn't called upon to testify at trial. Greg Domasevich's trial lasted for two months, beginning in October of 1998. It was front-page news and made headlines around the country, as a cast of Moe's finest were traipsed through the witness box to tell their stories. The prosecution's theory, outlined by Detective Roland Legg during the trial, was that Greg had allegedly killed Jaden. At first, it was possibly an accident that led to the boy breaking his arm. Greg had then slipped him this drug. It hadn't worked or only did momentarily, and Jaden came to screaming in pain, and then he hit him with a crowbar or threw him against the heater. After this, Leg alleged that Greg had come up with a plan to make it look like Belinda had done it. He alleged Greg had driven from his house to Belinda's around midnight, a time he said he wasn't there but witness testimony indicated otherwise, and put Jaden's body back in his cot. When he picked her up, he took the can of bourbon and coke to ensure she remained hammered upon her return home, when he then planned to put her to bed, leaving her to find Jaden's body in the morning. From there, Belinda would think she'd either done it in her drunken stupor or the police would think she had anyway. The change in his story came when they arrived home and the pig's head gang had struck. This crew of vandals were even more believable as Jaden's abductors and killers than Belinda. Detective Legg further alleged that Greg went back to Belinda's and picked up Jaden's body but forgot to remake the cot in his haste, hence it being in shambles. And then he drove out to Blue Rock Dam to dispose of his body before returning home to wake Belinda. Greg Domasevich's defence team, headed by Colin Lovett, QC, believed police had tunnel vision and had tried to pin the whole thing on their client without investigating and excluding other possibilities. They made their main play throwing up as many alternative suspects in Jaden's murder as possible as to try and plant a seed of doubt in at least one juror's mind. And with the timing of the pig's head incident, the cast of characters surrounding that, the physical evidence which suggested other possibilities, however improbable those were, there was plenty for them to work with. In particular, Lovett managed to get under the skin of both Kenny Penfold and his mate Raymond Hopkinson. Both men were clearly agitated and abusive towards Lovett during questioning. Although the evidence wasn't there to support Lovett's contention, the performances and aggression on display likely planted a few seeds of doubt into jurors' minds. They had to think Greg Domasevich was guilty beyond reasonable doubt and there was no possibility that someone else could have done it. The prosecution's case was strong and the defence equally so. At the end of it all, the jury decided there was just too much possibility that someone else was involved to convict Greg Domasevich. His defence team had done their job and he was found not guilty and acquitted on the 4th of December 1998. Outside court, a reporter asked Colin Lovett QC how he felt that his client had been found innocent. Lovett responded that he wasn't found innocent, he was found not guilty. Belinda, who still flipped and flopped on Greg's guilt or innocence at this time, continued seeing him for a while after the trial concluded, but their relationship soured for good when Greg allegedly commented on how ugly a photo of Jaden was. Belinda flew off the handle at him and he tried to strangle her allegedly, saying that if he said he'd killed Jaden right there and then, there was nothing she could do about it. From that point, when Belinda realised Greg couldn't be tried for the same crime again, she broke off contact with him. Belinda, now much clearer on what had likely happened to Jaden, 
thought staying with Greg might lead somewhere, someday, in terms of him coming forward with what he knew had happened, but he never did. In May of 2002, some three and a half years after the trial, a two-page report was released by then-Deputy Coroner Ian West. It was the findings of a closed-door inquiry, and it didn't appease Belinda Murphy in the slightest. She was outraged that the report barely covered the known facts of the case and even got Jaden's date of birth wrong. She wrote letters to Attorney General Rob Holes and State Coroner Graham Johnston requesting a full and thorough public inquest. In 2005, her wish was granted and an inquest was held over 26 days. Over 50 witnesses were called to give evidence, some new, some already heard, some slightly different to what had been heard previously. Needless to say, Greg Domasevich's defence team were less than impressed with him effectively being tried in the public arena once again, having already been acquitted of this crime. We've detailed much of the evidence and testimony heard in this inquest, but there were a few additional key points that came to light. Firstly, the coroner was quite damning of both Greg Domasevich and Belinda Murphy and their general care of Jaden prior to his death. He noted the presumption that Greg generally had a reasonable relationship with Jaden was contrasted by reports of him striking the child on one occasion, turning the stereo up when he cried and leaving Jaden in the backyard with his three dogs. He was also quite stern about Belinda's lack of protective behaviour of Jaden and that although she seemed wary and nervous about leaving Jaden with Greg after previous incidents where he'd become hurt and had his hair cut off, this nervousness didn't trigger any real action towards protecting her son, and it should have. Other details surrounding injuries Jaden sustained in both Greg and Belinda's care surfaced too, including the rib injury that he'd had in the weeks prior to his death. However, the coroner noted there was no evidence to suggest Jaden was in severe discomfort in the days and hours before he died. Kenny Penfold gave evidence again, but slightly different this time. He noted that when he and Darren Wilson had been in the trees waiting to launch the pig's head, that he'd not only seen Greg put something in the bin, which by deduction was later theorised to be the bloody tissues, but he'd also seen Greg carrying a bag from the house, which he then put into his boot. The coroner noted that this hadn't been mentioned previously when Mr Penfold had given statements to police at the committal or the trial itself. Darren Wilson couldn't recall Greg putting anything into the car. Then we had a tape recording of a phone call between Greg Domasevich and a man named Stephen Venuman, brother of Andrew Venuman, which occurred on the 7th of April 2004 quest into Jaden Lesky's death has heard a secret recording by the Police Underworld Task Force in which Greg Domasevich comments on the difference between accidental death and murder. As Rachel Rollo reports, the coroner has ordered him to appear at the hearing. Michael Rafter's client, Greg Domasevich, didn't appear at court, but he was, as usual, the centre of attention. A phone conversation between the 36-year-old and Stephen Venuman, the brother of alleged underworld hitman Benji, was played to the coronial inquest. He rang Venuman concerned that a woman called Roberta thought he did do it. What about when you tormented that kid? That was different. It was a long time ago. Well, why was that different? You dropped that car on it. No, I'm telling you now, there's a big difference from that and f***ing murder. That, for a start, that's accidental death. It's really uh, a conversation you can read in a number of ways, and he's certainly not saying that he was aware that it was an accidental death. Jaden went missing in 1997. Domasevich had been babysitting him on the night the 14-month-old disappeared. He was acquitted of the toddler's murder by a Supreme Court jury in 1998. Jaden's mother, Belinda Williams, wasn't in court, but said in a note that Domasevich had all the answers, not her. Today, the coroner ordered him to appear at the inquest, saying he had to take every possible step in the investigation, even though it would be challenged on medical and legal grounds. The coroner said the decision wasn't easy because he was mindful of the continued emotional toll on Jaden's family and the further cost to the public purse. And the coroner is quite correct in saying, yes, we need to find at least attempt to find out more. Rachel Rollo, National 9 News.
At the conclusion of the second inquest, the coroner found that Greg Domasevich had contributed to Jaden's death and had likely disposed of his body, but was unable to reach any conclusions as to how Jaden died, whether it was by accident, intentionally, or some combination of both. Since this time, double jeopardy laws have changed in Victoria, meaning Greg Domasevich could be charged a second time if significant new evidence came to light. Some people think that's already happened and are convinced of his guilt. Belinda is one of those people and she wrote an emotional open letter to Greg in the time after this, pleading for him to come forward and tell the truth about what he knows. She has sought justice for Jaden as time's gone on, joining a coalition for the reform of these double jeopardy laws. Belinda has also gone on to marry a man named Jeremy Williams and they've had four children together. Our thoughts go out to them, the Lesky and Murphy families who lost Jaden in this tragedy. A kit assisting parents with choosing appropriate babysitters was released in Jaden's memory some 10 years after his death. He would have turned 24 in April of this year. There's a small plaque commemorating him near the Blue Rock Dam. So that's that case done. Um, my thoughts on this one leading on from that, the thought of the potential of a 24-year-old man and the life that he didn't get to live is truly heartbreaking. I hope that he's remembered for the short life he led by the people that knew him as well and not just his death. And I just hope that the people that cared about him that were close to him have found some peace since his passing. That's pretty much it from me on this one. It's so sad. It is very sad. You know, we've been pretty reticent to cover this one for some time. I'm glad we finally have. I I hope we told it well. Uh, My father-in-law actually visited us the other day and we were talking about these types of of cases, um, Gerard Ross's as well, and it's just a shame that, you know, he didn't get to grow up. All of those experiences that could have been having his own family, kids, grandkids, all that stuff that's missed, you know, it really impacts so many lives aside from the obvious. So it's just sad that this little fella wasn't taken care of when he was hurt. You know, he could have lived. Uh, but other things were more important to those around him. And I, I think that's the the saddest thing about this case. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, on that note, let's move on to our happy thoughts. So we've shown up most weeks through 2020 and managed a happy thought. So I feel like there's a bit of pressure to really bring a good one this, <laughs> this week. Uh, so on that note, what's yours? Well, I've already given uh, everyone a bit of a preview at the start, but it's it's Christmas songs. I know I'm uh, I'm very um, Christmassy at, at the moment with all my happy thoughts, but I do enjoy just putting on in the background around this time. I know I made the uh, the Michael Bublé quip, but that it, Michael Bublé's Christmas album, incidentally, has been the number one Christmas album in Australia for I think the last twelve or thirteen years, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, right. but. I like the old-timey guys, so like uh, Bing, yeah. Bing Crosby, Burl Ives, you know, those sort of, mm-hmm. uh, who they, they do all those songs and, you know, on Spotify and stuff, they put them all together on a big playlists now and so yeah. I, love, I love putting those on in the background and singing all the silly songs <laughs> with the kids and uh, that's been kind of fun. So that's my happy thought. What's yours? That's cool. Um, mine is that I've been doing... Um, so I started at some point during one of the lockdowns we had here in Victoria doing, when we could, small little outdoor boot camps and the trainers that have done been doing them have kept them going. So I've added that into my gym kind of routine and um, a lot of the, they're kind of framing them as strongman sessions now. So we have, you know, a big sled where you put stuff on and you pull it along and, and tie like big truck tires that you flip over and yeah. big kind of, I don't know, grill things that you stand in and do deadlifts with and it's super fun and I feel really strong and awesome every time I leave it. So, um, and I know I bang on about the gym and no one cares that much, but it's so fun. <laughs> That's good. Sounds like you're getting your uh, your Scandinavian strongman on for Christmas. That's good. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, and if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link's in the show notes. 
And for $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed. You get all of our bonus content, which is our Blue Label episodes. We do Murder Lounge, Sneak Previews. Um, We've got some stuff coming up over the summer too, some commentary, director's cut type stuff. We also have ad-free regular episodes, early release as well when possible. Sometimes I can get them done uh, three or four days early. Sometimes they're only a matter of hours early, but uh, <laughs> it's half an hour. It's yeah, early. <laughs> they're all they're generally always early and and usually a day or two. So yeah, and um, thank you everyone for your listenership and support over the past year. This is our last episode for the year. We'll be taking a break over the summer and re-releasing some old episodes with new intros and some director's cut commentary on our Patreon feed as well. Yep, and we'll be eyeing off a uh, a late February return, I think. Uh, Until then, stay safe, everyone. Enjoy your Christmas and New Year, and we'll catch you all soon. Thanks, everyone. See you in 2021. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.